Uh, We're going to be looking in Galatians chapter 4 today at a message I call the fullness of time. The fullness of the time. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Our consideration on Sunday morning at the book of Galatians brings us today to this amazing passage. It is a season for us when our attention is naturally drawn to the passage of time. So when we see the eternal God calling our attention to such a specific thing, the fullness of the time, uh, then that should grab our attention. And it will serve today as the Uh, focus of our message. In order to do this, I want to read the the whole passage. We want to start back in verse 1. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, uh, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ When the fullness of the time had come. Ages had passed. Eons of time had passed. I think back to that antediluvian time. The time before the flood. When people routinely lived 900 years and more. I wonder if any of them said, you know, just yesterday I was 300 I imagine some guy, you know, going up, sitting down, and he gets up and he groans. And somebody says, what's the matter with you? Oh, I'm getting old. Well, how old are you? I'm 600. You ain't seen nothing yet. Just wait till you're 900. You're a spring chicken yet. Bob, when I was 600, I could still work. Can you reckon those conversations might have happened? A little bit different for us. Somebody says, it just seemed like yesterday I was 30. That seems a lot different than... Uh, just yesterday I was 300. Uh, it's hard for us. Uh, and by Psalm 90, the psalmist Moses wrote that the days of man are threescore and ten. And if by reason, that's 70, if by reason of strength they be fourscore eighty, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For we are soon cut off, he said, and we fly away, uh, the psalmist Moses. So by the time Moses was writing, that was the routine of lifespan. You know, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years. After all this time and all of our advances in medical technology, we're still right about that area. Uh, although we see more and more people uh, uh, passing the century mark. We haven't nearly got back to the way things were uh, back in the Bible times and before the flood. Hundreds of generations had lived and worked and served and built and had children and grandchildren and, and died. The new year had come in 
on at least uh, 5,000 years, five different millennia by the time this passage says that was time, the fullness of the time had come. It's important for us in our day to remember that the eternal God rules over the passage of time. Uh, eons mean nothing to him. The Bible says that the days of our lives pass before God as a tale that is told. And he reads all of our storyline. He knows them all. He sees all these thousands of generations live and die. He knows. And yet he reigns supreme. He is still eternal. The Holy Trinity never has to call an emergency session. God doesn't have contingency plans. We do. God does not. God doesn't have a plan B. In, fact, in case plan A doesn't work out, he doesn't have to think, well, in case this happens, you know, what might be happen? What might happen? We, don't, we have to be flexible. God doesn't have to be flexible. We just scratch the surface by looking at these things this morning when we consider uh, the depth of meaning in that expression when the fullness of the time had come. But I want us to consider today what prompted this statement to be made. And in order to do that, we'll consider our thoughts under four major headings. The parable, uh, the premise, the principle then, and the promise. We begin then with the parable. And the parable is in verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Paul has already introduced us to the schoolmaster, the pedagogos in chapter 3. And now he brings up more titles, the guardians and stewards. He speaks of an heir, uh, which in biblical times, of course, would refer to the firstborn son. He was entitled to a double portion of the father's estate and the privilege of being in charge of the family business and lands, whatever they were. No one would put such incredible responsibility in the hands of a 13-year-old. And so in the story that Paul tells about the heir and how that he differs nothing from a servant, uh, there's the implication that the father is absent from the scene. Uh, his estate then, uh, though it belongs to his oldest son, the heir, yet that heir is under a guardian. That heir is under the steward who has the legal authority for all of the father's business. And so here is a young man who is the heir of his father's estate. It all belongs to him. And yet, like any other servant in the household, he has to do what the steward, what the manager tells him to do until the time that is appointed by the father. And then and only then could the heir take over his rights and privileges. Now, his position was established by birth, but the enjoyment of that position was set in place by the father that's the parable now the premise of it then how this applies to us even so verse 3 we when we were children were in bondage under the elements the rudiments of the world so that Paul will use that parable as an example of how the law of Moses then put people who though they were the children of God they were born as the seed of Abraham. They were born again into that relationship with God. Yet God put them under the law, the guardian, the steward, who would tell them how to live and what to do. 
The word elements in this passage translated rudiments in other places is a series of commands. First you do this, then this, then this, and this. It's a one, two, three kind of thing, ABC kind of thing. And any of us that have ever raised children or are raising them now are familiar with how this operates. Get up. It's time to wake up. Y'all will play this out tomorrow. School starts tomorrow, one day this week. Time to get up. Get up. Get your shower. Come on. Get in here. You need to eat breakfast. Get your breakfast. All right, do you have all your stuff? Time to get dressed. Uh, you better hurry. The bus is coming. You're going to miss it. You know what you're going to do the next day? Time to get up. <laughs> Time to get dressed. Come in here and eat your breakfast. Get your shower. You got all your stuff. You better hurry. You know what you're going to do on Wednesday? Same thing. Same thing. Same thing. I remember looking longingly and wistfully to the time when my children would be able to get up on their own and dress themselves. And I'll tell you, when that happens, the next day, they're gone. Doesn't happen quickly. Now, we understand that with children. Children need structure. And children need a routine. There was a time then, generations had passed, when God's people were born and yet they were under the strict guardianship and stewardship of the law. It told them what to do first, what to do next, how to do this, how to live their life. Oh, it's today. Well, what are we doing today? Well, today is this day, that day. And the law gave them those very, very specific instructions. Now, I want to take a moment this morning just to remind you that uh, this kind of discipline is a good thing for children. Children need it. One of the great mysteries of life is just how long would a teenager sleep if nobody woke them up? Would they eat, get dressed, get anything done for a day? Would they be productive? I vividly remember a conversation I had with a wise older woman once who was discussing someone that we both knew who was going through a very, very difficult time. And she just kind of shook her head. And I've thought of this hundreds of times. And she said, you know, this person didn't get any raising at all. They were just birthed and fed and turned loose. There's not a week goes by that I don't think of that statement. People all over Cabot, people all over America that are not getting any raising today. And I'll tell you, a bunch of adolescents and teenagers raising each other and some of them having to raise their parents at the same time. This is not a story that's going to turn out well. And it's not turning out well. We can't say that discipline was a bad thing or having a schedule or regimented behavior or structure. It wasn't a bad thing. They needed it. God gave it to them because he knew they needed it. But there comes a time when you don't need that anymore. There's a time then for responsibility. There's a time for stepping up and, and, and taking on that responsibility on your own. I can't explain why that it was more than 5,000 years from the time of the creation until Jesus came. I, I can't explain all of those centuries that they had to live out under the law of Moses. I can't tell you why that it was that way. That knowledge belongs to God and to God alone. What I can tell you was that there came a time when it says, that's it. This is the fullness of time. 
And I'm no longer going to leave my people under that strict regimented lifestyle of the law. They were never able to live up to it anyway. And so when the fullness of time was come, it's time. It's time. The principle then is next. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. I, I can't help but smile every time I read this passage. It is so profound. Over and over again, you see, Jesus presented himself as the one sent by the Father. He would conclude his ministry by saying, As the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. He was the sent one. And over and over and over again, the Bible speaks of that. And Jesus spoke of that. And there is more to this than our finite minds can understand. But for this morning, let's just realize that for Jesus to be sent, if he's going to be sent, the Son of God is going to be sent, then the Son of God had to already be there. He had to be there in order for him to be sent. And he was. John puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was sent and could be sent. Now, we can't understand everything about the Trinity. I understand that. But uh, there is a part of that three distinct persons. And the person that is presented here is the role of the Son. He was sent into the world. He was made of a woman. This speaks to us of his humanity. Made of a woman. I can't explain how. The mystery of this has transcended the ages. How the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent God could become an embryo in a virgin's womb defies explanation, defies understanding. And yet it is what happened. Let the abortion crowd argue all day long that what was there is just a meaningless lump of flesh. God forever disproved that argument when Jesus was born of a woman. He was made then under the law. On the eighth day of his life, Jesus was taken to the temple in Jerusalem to be circumcised. He would have taken on by that then all of the demands and the requirements of the law. The religious leaders of his day would forever try to convict him of, of disobeying some principle in the law. And yet he never did. Now, he didn't honor their traditions. He didn't honor their interpretations. And so they argued about it again and again and again. But make no mistake, Jesus could stand before that very crowd and issue the challenge, which one of you convinceth me of sin? Who among you can convict me of sin? And the answer was none. We wouldn't issue that uh, challenge to our best friend. Because <laughs> they know too much about us. Uh, but Jesus issued that to his enemies. Did they ever convict him of sin? Not a single time. He was born under the law. And he fulfilled every bit of the law's demands. So we have before us then the divine invasion. God sent forth his son made of a woman. Made under the law. 
But then there's also the divine intervention to redeem them that were under the law. The law's demands could never be met. The penalty loomed before them always. The wages of sin is death. The price that had to be paid then was absolute perfect obedience. And none of them kept it. But Jesus Christ did. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived without sin. And therefore to those who believe on him there is redemption. He liberates us. Sets us free from the slavery that we were under to the law. He did not set us free from the law just so we could jump back in and make ourselves slaves to sin. That's not the way it works. He freed us or redeemed us so that we can serve him, live for him, honor him, glorify him, worship him in spirit and in truth. Lastly, then see the promise, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. There was the divine invasion. God sent forth his son and the divine intervention to redeem them that were under the law. But there's also the divine infusion. God sent forth the spirit. Second time, God sent forth his son. God sent forth the spirit. Now, Jesus talked about that in John chapter 14 when he talked about the coming of what he called the comforter, the paracletae, the comforter. And he said something that you and I might argue with, and I've argued with him a time or two about this. Uh, Listen, if if you struggle with something, tell God you struggle. It's okay. He he understands. I struggle to understand how that it is better on our side not to have the physical presence of Jesus Christ. I don't know how many times I've longed to be able just to sit down with him, have a talk. Just to to share a meal with him. What a privilege the apostles had to be able to visit with him personally, individually. Be around him, walk with him, talk with him, have a conversation. What a time that was to be with the Lord Jesus. But you know, if Jesus, when the Bible says he humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a man, and when he did, and I have no other way to say this, he accepted or embraced the limitations of a physical form. He did. This is his role as that person of the Godhead. Yes, he could suspend that any time he wanted to, but he took on that physical form. If Jesus was still here in a physical form, there'd be only one Jesus. When you wanted to talk to him, you'd have to go see him. Can you imagine what kind of line that would be? It'd be longer than it is at that one checkout station that Walmart has open. You know what I'm saying? Can you imagine how long you'd have to wait in line to talk to Jesus? There's only one. No wonder Jesus said then, it is better for you, it is expedient for you that I go away. But when I go away, he said, I will send the comforter, and that's the Holy Spirit. Paul brings that right into this passage when he says that God sent forth his spirit. Where is it? In your hearts. In your hearts. This was not something that God the Father would do. God the Father was not born of a woman. God the Father was not made under the law. God the Father does not come into your heart and abide, and that's not his role. Jesus Christ, God the Son, was the one who was born of a woman. Jesus Christ, as God the Son, was the one who was made under the law. 
But Jesus doesn't live inside your hearts like that. That's not his role. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who lives in your heart. Now, this is not to say this morning, anytime you start talking about this, I run the risk of being misunderstood. I'm not trying to tell you. Remember, the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that there are three persons, one personality. That's why that Jesus would say, I'm going away, but I will not leave you comfortless, he said. I will come to you. That's why Jesus could say, I will never leave you to have the Holy Spirit in us. is to have Jesus in us, to have the Holy Spirit in us. Certainly, it is to have God the Father in us. But we need to understand there are three persons and they all have their role God sent forth his son and God sent forth then his spirit into your hearts he lives inside of us no slave could ever say Ava father even if that were literally true and in the days of slavery unfortunately it was often true. But the slave or the child rather born to a woman who was a bondwoman was always going to be a slave. And though the master may well have been a father, the slave could never say it, could never claim it, would never have that relationship. That's why the passage brings up the whole concept of adoption because this speaks to us of how God gives us the full rights and privilege of being a child. We are born into God's family. We are his children. And we have then all of the legal rights that go along with being a child of God. Uh, You know, if, if you've raised children, you've probably observed something as I have. Uh, children don't think anything about walking up to their parents' cabinets and opening it up and starting to eat your food. Do you notice that? You leave money around laying on the counter, they don't think a thing about it. They don't think it's stealing about taking that. They need some extra lunch money. Boom, it's gone. Uh, A little bit later, they'll come and get the keys to your car, bring it back empty of gas. That's the way it goes. Uh, Why do they do that? Because they understand that they're part of this family. And because of that, they have rights and privileges. They, they think of the father's wealth and resources as being their own. Why? Because in a very real sense, it is. When we are adopted into God's forever family... We have all the legal rights then of being an heir of God. We're given full, unrestricted access to all of the assets of heaven. No good thing, the Bible says, will God withhold from him that walks uprightly. We don't fear to get our hands slapped if we grab hold of God's promises. That's not going to happen. When we claim them as our own, God's not going to tell us, hey, that's mine. You can't have that. No. Uh-uh. We are heirs of God. And the Spirit of God lives in us to constantly direct us to the resources that are available to us through Jesus Christ. This brings us then to two great questions that we need to face in concluding this message this morning. And the first one is this. Uh, can you call God Ava, Father. 
Can you look to Almighty God then and know that He is your Father? It is only those who have been born again that can make this claim. Simon Peter told us that we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible of the Word of God. And this is the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that if you have realized that you are a sinner, that you need God in your life, and you understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again the third day, so that he would give you life. You understand then that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And whoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then God is your father. And you have then all of the rights and privileges that go along with that. So the first question is, can you call God your Father? And you can if you have been born again into his forever family. Secondly, if you can call God your Father, do you? Do you? Do you claim those resources that are available to you? Or are you living far beneath your privilege as a child of God? We don't encourage people to behave recklessly. And there's a lot of recklessness in our world today. There's a whole philosophy of of belief that's called the name it, claim it kind of thing. And the people who buy into that start talking to God as if they could issue demands. Take your demands to God and see how far you get. No, we come to him as a child, approaches our loving father. He has made available to us through Jesus Christ the marvelous resources of heaven. And won't it be a sad day when we stand before him to realize what all we missed out on that was there available to us all the time. There's an old song. It said, time after time, I went searching for peace in some void. I was trying to blame all my ills on this world I was in. Surface relationships used me till I was done in. And all the while someone was waiting to free me from sin. He was there all the time. He was there all the time. Waiting patiently in line. He was there. All the time. Oh, listen to me, folk. God the Father is waiting patiently. He's there for you. If you're his child, he has resources available to you. If you're not, you can become his child if you'll call upon him today.